that was the first moment since I had severed my spine that I realized that I had, I would never be alone, number one, and I had the strongest support system that would never let me fail. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. You look radiant. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a healthy glow. Did you just come from yoga? I did just come from yoga. Actually, I came from yoga and I really do enjoy the sweaty yoga. It's not Bikram, but it's hot vinyasa at Heatwise. Shout out because I love you guys. And I love everything about it. But the after experience is a little gnarly because I came straight here. I'm feeling very dehydrated. I have not put anything on my skin and I feel... Get you some water. I, well, I've been drinking water, but okay. I need something topical because everything's starting to feel like sandpaper. Well, you don't look like sandpaper. You look quite moisturized <laughs> um, and dewy. It must be the lotion. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we don't do ads. Every once in a while, we get you know, some product courtesy of our illustrious guests who we really appreciate giving us some samples. And I don't know. I don't feel bad about giving them a shout out when it's stuff we actually like. No, this shit is good. Yes, yeah. I have to say. So we sat down with Francesco. Yeah. He's going to love that you're <laughs> riffing on his name like no one else ever did. <laughs> <laughs> I just love to say Francesco. So he has this amazing skincare line called Clark's Botanicals. And I've been using it and I have to say, I love it. I know, it's I love it too. So it's like silk. It's like silky, buttery. Which yeah. ones do you like the best? Well, the marine cream is mm -hmm. what I've been using. And then he and then he gave us the um he was kind enough to give us the night. Yeah, the overnight retinol. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So um I've been using that and I have to say I noticed like well, I also like uh, you know, truth be told, I don't always wash my face before I go to bed. Especially because I feel like I wear all this natural makeup. I'm like, whatever. I guess if I could eat it, I could sleep in it. Totes. No big deal. But now I look forward to like putting on the Clarks before I go to bed. Yeah. It actually encourages me to have like a little routine thing. Yeah, no, it's beautiful stuff. The packaging is really nice. Francesco Clark has an unbelievable story. Yeah. Oh, right. And then there's his story. I mean, yeah. I don't think that we need to underemphasize uh, how he kind of arrived at, at discovering it's all crazy. of this, which we will let listeners hear for themselves. But... Suffice to say, this is um, a highway to well like none other that we have encountered. And the fact that he came out the other side of a very kind of tragic and life-changing experience and has this incredible product is really worthy of some a, a big a big nod and um, some congratulations. So enjoy the episode, enjoy the story. Check out the products at clarksbotanicals.com because they are fabulous. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Francesco Clark, founder of Clark's Botanicals. Yes. Clark Francesco. <laughs> you couldn't even wait until we're three seconds in. Do it. No. Francesco Rinaldi. I yes. mean, it's just... <laughs> we were just talking about that. 
Sorry, I'm Clark, Clark of Clarks. And Clark of Clarks. Yeah. So welcome. We're very happy to meet you and have you on the on the satellite version of our recording um, yes. here in these beautiful offices. We don't often get out. So we appreciate the opportunity to take our show on the road. Yeah, I don't even know what to do with myself right now. I'm just like... There are people around. <laughs> it's a pop-up podcast. It is a pop... Oh my God, that's perfect. It's yeah. a podcast. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. Uh, um, so we want to know about this very cool business that you've started um, and really the story behind it, which is fascinating. And uh, everybody needs to, needs to know where you have been. Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me, first of all. And I come from a background of editorial. So I used to work at Condé Nast. And I worked at the now defunct Mademoiselle magazine. And then I was recruited a year later to work at Harper's Bazaar in the fashion department. Mm. And I was at Bazaar for a year. And I was, it was a much smaller editorial staff. So as a very, very, very junior person there. What year was this? 2001. So okay. I was the last person to leave Mademoiselle the week after 9-11. Oh, wow. And then the magazine folded because all these advertisers had to pull out because of the market plunging mm-hmm. down. And that was kind of the first time that you would understand um, working in the editorial department, how the markets could affect the magazine in general. So you know, fast forward to today, what it means to be online versus in print media. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much part of the zeitgeist of what it mean, what it meant to be in print versus online. Mm-hmm. But then moving to Bazaar, we had a lot more responsibilities, even when you know, you're know you a 20-something-year-old. And I was assisting these amazing stylists and working on these amazing shoots with John Waters and Ariane Phillips, who was and still is Madonna stylist, and like meeting Karl Lagerfeld. And How old were you at the time? 24. Okay. 23, 24. So... Kind of a dream come true. Not exactly even, what I was about to say. <laughs> not even a fully formed frontal court. You were just just about to have yeah. your 25th quarter life. Yes. <laughs> as we all do. My, my, my quarter life crisis had not yet happened, but I felt like my road to well was well on its way because I was living this dream. And I was working with luminaries and seeing what it meant to bring a vision to reality as an entrepreneur who then becomes this like fashion brand that everybody knows, but understanding what it means to have a strong work ethic and then going to all the fashion shows and seeing how to bring a vision to reality and what, is, what does it mean to go to market? What does it mean to have a product and sustainability? What does it mean to have a platform? Um, so I knew I wanted to have my own business, my own thing, but I did not know how that would materialize. So after a year, I was promoted. The weekend that I was promoted, um, I had a summer share house in Long Island. And it was Memorial Day weekend in 2002. The most beautiful kind of, not a cloud in the sky, um, perfect day. And it was with friends of friends of friends, so complete strangers. And the metal ring ladders that you're legally supposed to put in the deep end of the pool were put in the shallow end of the pool. And I dove in. And the second that I dove in, it was this like, oh shit, this is the shallow end. My chin hit the bottom of the pool and it snapped back 
with such force that it shattered my C3, C4 vertebrae, which is about two inches above that little bump in the back of your neck. So my bone shattered with such force that it, it completely severed my spine. And I was awake, 100% alone. Um, you remember all oh, of Oh, everything. The- I never fainted. I never... You never went to shock? No. Oh my God. No, I never lost consciousness. So I was underwater and my arms were splayed to the side and I was floating. And I could see the little bubbles floating up from my mouth. And all I could hear was my mother's voice saying, do you realize how much work you're going to have to do to get better? And your mother was not actually there? No. She's in your head. Okay. Right. So, somebody walked into the house, saw me um, floating, lifted my head above the water. And I said, call 911. You just saved my life. But nobody believed me because I didn't have a bruise. There was not a drop of blood. And nobody saw it happen. Right. So I I looked the same as I had one second earlier, but um, my left lung was collapsing. My vocal cords were failing. I was losing blood oxygen levels in my blood. So I'm helicoptered over. I'm telling everybody what to do. I'm like, don't move my neck. Lift me out of the pool. Like fight or flight took over. Mm -hmm. And my mom's voice was that voice of fight kind Mm -hmm. of um, in myself, I realized, and I got it from her, thank God. And then I was helicoptered over to Sunny Stony Brook. And shortly thereafter, the neurosurgeon said, you have a 19% chance of surviving not only tonight, but the next two years of your life. My parents were on vacation with my sister in Florida. And they were like, we have to send your life away. And I said, no, I do not want to be the person responsible for that to happen. So they went away, came back. They did this four times, came back and forth, came back and forth. And then finally they said, like, you actually are going to die if you don't verbally agree to this. So I said yes, which meant I had to get on the phone with them. And I was kind of like, mom, I feel like the biggest idiot in the world. I shattered my spine. I'm like, they're telling me I'm not going to live. What did I do? And you know, she was like, she said, I can hear your voice and you can hear my voice. So I know you're going to be okay because we're coming up right now to be next to you and just be strong. And then I got on the phone with my dad, who's a medical doctor. And he's always very calm. And he just said, don't worry. We're coming up right now. And then my sister got on the phone and she said, you know, the nurse told me that you didn't want to call us. And how selfless can you be as to not think of your family? Don't do that ever again. But each one of them, in saying that, it was never like a goodbye. It was like, don't do that ever again. Mm -hmm. Foreshadowing, you will survive and I will be angry. And you're going to hear about this. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I woke up from surgery the next day. And I remember even being wheeled into the operating room and it was awash in this like mint green color of tiles like over your head. And there's this medical equipment just floating just above your face and your body and all this stuff. And you're completely alone. And the nurses and everybody's saying like, just be calm. And you're sitting there like, are you fucking kidding me? I know. So I wake up from surgery and the surgeon is saying the same thing to my parents as he had said to me. But he didn't know that my father's a medical doctor. Um, what was the actual procedure? They were fusing 
they fused my spine using titanium. Okay. Um, and then they took a graft of bone from my hips. But while that was happening, my left lung was collapsing and like my body was shutting down. So when I was waking up from surgery 18 hours later, the surgeon was saying 18 that... 18 hours? Yeah. Yeah. How many different surgeons did... Like, one. So it was one. One did the whole yeah. thing. Wow. Oh my God. And I mean, there was one, the one was in charge right. of everything. And I'm sure there were people helping, but he was directing everything and he was good. So my neck is stabilized. But when he was saying that to my father, my father, you know, turned to him and said, like, I, I hope you don't speak to your other patients like this because you could just say, I don't know. You don't mm. have to give the worst prognosis because it removes all hope. And then my father turns to me and she, in Italian, she goes, Francesco sposta qualcosa, move something. And so then I twitched my shoulder and she was like, you don't know our son. And so that was the first moment since I had severed my spine that I realized that I had, I would never be alone, number one. And I had the strongest support system that would never let me fail. One of the side effects of my injury is that not only could I not move or feel 95% of my body, but my skin stopped reacting to temperature. So I could be, it'll be 110 degrees outside in the summer and I will not sweat. Mm. When you sit in a wheelchair, your skin becomes the organ that is always under constant attack mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you're putting pressure on your hips and your butt and your knees and your feet because you're sitting all the time. You can't get up to relieve that pressure. Imagine sitting in an airplane seat for five years, never being able to get up. Oh. So you develop these like sores, these like beds. You can develop that. And then it can become infected and then you can die from that. And that's actually like a huge concern. So I, was, I learned about skin health very early on when I had this injury. Well, wait, before we get there, just, yeah. just so I understand. So yes. the surgery sounds somewhat miraculous at this point. And they, they kind of give you very little chance of survival and then came back around and said, oh, actually, it's, it's looking good. And, and uh, I mean, what was your... What was that? What was the experience of going from okay, I thought I was going to die to now I'm here to then actually, you know, like you're saying, then educating yourself on this kind of new reality? Not very good because when you wake up from surgery, you're not registering the fact that you were not supposed to survive. You're more registering the fact that now your family's in front of you and like you can't move or feel. So you're. I was hoping that it would have been a nightmare and that I was hoping that I would have woken up and that was all just a dream. But then you're dealing with the harsher reality of, oh, not only is it not a dream, but now your parents and your sister are in front of you and you have to see the reflection of yourself in their eyes and you have to see the reality of what it means to deal with that through the lens of people that truly love you. And you feel, I felt like a complete failure. I felt like um, I didn't feel, I didn't feel worthy of like being human and part of the family by that point. And I felt like it was too much. I felt like it was um, this level of trauma that I never would expect for them to feel. And it was my fault. Even though it was an accident, 
you know, so there's two parts of your brain that's like, it was an accident. You never would have known. But then there's the other part that's like, and yet mm, you're the right. one that did it. Right. Um, and so, you know, you're dealing with that duality of everything. Which I can't imagine was short-lived. I mean... Right. <laughs> and I would not imagine my worst enemy to ever feel um, any of that. It's yeah. not something you would want anyone to feel. So from an emotional point of view, let alone from the physical rehabilitation, but from an emotional, mental point of view, you had a very long road ahead of you. To, yeah. to So I started to... So in this kind of dark moment, um, the you know they used to like stick this tube down my nose to go into my lungs to suction out the pool water from my lung because um, my blood oxygen levels were too low and it would hurt. But they were like, "Don't cough." You know, you have to pretend like you're breathing in the tube. I'm like, "What the hell does that mean? Breathe in the tube?" So you're going against all the instincts of your body, and then they're clearing out, clearing out your lungs. But then my left vocal cord was paralyzing because one of the nurses got the suction tube stuck on my vocal cord. And I started like moving my head. And she said, shut up, don't tell me how to do my job. But I no. couldn't talk. But I couldn't talk by that point because my vocal cord had become paralyzed. So then I couldn't communicate what happened. And then like I could only whisper kind of like this for 45 minutes. And that was it. But you were and like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> I know for you. Mine. So then the respiratory therapist, the occupational therapist came in and she said, you have to blow through this like, straw that blows this ball in the air and it's therapy you have to do every day. I had to do that. Yeah, I and I was kind too. of like, screw that. I'm not doing that. So I, my best friend and my sister brought in Mamma Mia the Musical, the, the CD, <laughs> into the ICU. Way better rehab I than know. blowing the and ball. And I started singing karaoke. <laughs> so it would be like a loud whisper karaoke every day. And I would sing it like they had it on repeat. Or, or I had it on repeat for four hours at a time. So I know every ABBA song. Oh, I, you're like, in very good company. Yes. Just you're now. like, I'm going to find a new way to torture this nurse. The nurses, <laughs> totally. actually, I'm gonna say. the nurses would come in and say, I brought in my favorite CD, please. Like, and they would but say, ABBA. this. So then they would change the CDs to whatever they wanted. Um, <laughs> and I would continue singing. But it's, that's very much kind of the way that I started to look at therapy is make it fun, make it creative. Mm-hmm. And do it in a way that you can make it your own. So I'm not the kind of person that would watch soap operas all day. And that's what I felt like my life had been kind of regaled to. And I did not like that. So what hospital was this? SUNY Stony Brook and Long Island. And it was in June. You know, you're looking out the window. It's beautiful, sunny. Um, It doesn't equate to the way that you're feeling. Mm. Um, Everybody else is having fun. You're in your early 20s. And so I had to make it my own. And that was part of my my road to recovery. Then moving back home. After how long? How, when did you get? This oh, week? then I went to Mount Sinai. So then I was an inpatient at Mount Sinai for two months, and I felt better because I was in Manhattan and I was living in Manhattan right before my injury. So um, I felt like I could feel the energy, and it was more accessible for friends to visit me and my family to visit me also. And you know, then I started to understand the enormity of everything that happened Mm. and how my life had changed. I mean, in the blink of an eye, I got promoted. And then the same day, I couldn't breathe. And then it felt like the best and the worst of everything happened right Mm. away. And how would I 
take the initiative with the support of my family to do something about it. And that was something that I wasn't prepared to do at so early on in my life. So I had a lot of Oprah moments and thinking about who I was kind of at my core. And to be honest, I'm the same. I, you know, people ask about near death and trauma. My personality is the same as it was before, but I have a deeper appreciation of what it means to know kind of what love is, what a familial love is, Mm -hmm. and what a mother and a father and my brother and my sister would do for me um, after. And friendship became this thing that you can spot in the blink of an eye because the true friends would visit me every single day in the hospital and would continue to when I moved back home. The other ones would drop off. I mean, dropped off. Mm. What I was most surprised about is I was working in this industry, in the fashion industry, that you would assume would be shallow and kind of fleeting. But Glenda Bailey, the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, would write me letters every week. Mm. Had Madonna call me personally when I was a patient at Mount Sinai. Every stylist would write me letters, come visit me. They sent me like this bouquet of balloons that took up the entire room in the hospital (laughs) and then would come visit me. And so this group of people that you would assume would not care and only cared about the way that you look, actually cared about the way that I felt. And that opened up a door to looking in the mirror for the first time in three years because I shaved my head bald every week and I wore the same t-shirt every day. I wear the same paper hospital pants every day because I felt like I'd become such a worry to my family and my close friends that in order to be the opposite of a worry, I had to become a wallflower, a nothing. So that that they would not think about me, they would not worry about me. Mm -hmm. In doing so, I became very robotic and only tried to move my toes and move my pinky for like eight to 10 hours a day going to physical therapy and occupational therapy and all of that. But the day that Christopher Reeve passed away, Mm. who was the biggest advocate, my hero, he was Superman. To have somebody like that suddenly be gone for a reason that we didn't know changed my life. Yeah. And so I looked in the mirror because I had been asked to be part of an advocacy group for Westchester and the New York State for other people with disabilities. And I hadn't left the house in three years. And so I, in getting ready to go to this meeting, I said, you know, mom, I'm going to go to the meeting. But I had to put on a real shirt and real pants. And she turned around. She's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so I think for her, it was a moment of realizing that I was coming back to myself. Mm-hmm. But that was a span of like three years. Three years. Say. And you were, so why did you shave your head? Because I didn't care about combing my hair. Just because it was a low maintenance thing. Yeah, yeah. It was just easier. Didn't. I could not care about how a haircut looked. Yeah. I did not want to be looked at. It sounds, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you were sort of trying to make yourself small and not noticed because any level of it was depression acknowledgement. Yes, of course. It was, you know, the first sign of depression is not caring about your appearance. Mm-hmm. And at the core, you know, when you are depressed, you're very insulated 
and you're not connecting with other people. When you're not connecting with other people, you can care less about what shirt you're wearing, mm-hmm. how you smell, how you look. Mm-hmm. It's almost the opposite. You're like, actually, I don't want anyone to look at me. Right. You're a single unit being in this world of billions and billions of people. You can care less. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't look the way that I felt. Mm-hmm. Because by this point, I had been doing so much therapy that I was feeling energetic. I was feeling happy. I did not look happy. I did not look energetic. I was finally at the point where I wanted to come to Manhattan again and roll along the streets of Manhattan and smile at a stranger and make new friends. But the way that my skin looked, because I stopped sweating, I had developed... I mean, my skin looked 10 years older um, than it was. I developed what looked like rosacea. I had these little bumps that looked like little grains of sand under Mm -hmm. each pore. So it was oily and dry in certain areas. I had tried everything from the $300... like I tried Lemaire, La Paris, prescription, over-the-counter, CVS, everything. Nothing worked. And I, I didn't... And I might add, I mean, this is an audio recording, but I think people should know that you're an extremely handsome man. And going back to, you know, now this is 15 plus years ago, I imagine you, you were in some way tied to this kind of youthful, fresh face, you know, like good looking guy that you once were. And that's hard to grapple with. And now I'm blushing. So thank <laughs> you. Yes. Um, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you, you feel like you rule the world. And it's a very kind of selfish, selfish existence um, by that point. And to pivot suddenly to dealing with like insurance at that age and home health care. I mean, you're dealing with questions that you would deal with issues that you're dealing with much later on. But yes, so having kind of that sense of pride and confidence, um, I felt like I was back to myself. Mm-hmm. And so I turned to my father because I didn't look that way. And he is a medical doctor and one of the first medical doctors who's also a homeopath in New York. Mm-hmm. You have to help me bring me back to who I am. And we, I said this in the van. We were leaving the Met Museum and my mom was in the car and she said, yes, Harold, you have to help. Because <laughs> they, work, they work together. My mom, my mom works with my dad. She has her PhD and my dad has a doctor. And they met in graduate school. So they're very much like they were first loves. You know, it's just been like a lifelong partnership for, for them. What so, is your mom's uh, area? Um, she got her PhD in languages, but then she became a phlebotomist oh. um, and a nutritionist. Wow. Um, I think after she realized that my dad likes more the caring and the medical part of it, but does not understand the business part of having mm-hmm. a practice. So they have a good balance. Yeah. Sounds um, like bedside manner is definitely one of his strengths. Yeah. Which is rare. Yes. And so they must so have been just, like so instrumental in being your advocate. And oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. Best parents and during, ever. Best parents ever. Mm-hmm. And during this, my nice. sister was going, got, like, got into medical school, then went to medical school. And She's I said, older or younger than you? Two years younger. My right. brother's seven years older. And so I had this network of people in my family that was just always there. Um, and my grandmother, who passed away a year ago, but she would come, she would live with us. She was living with us and she would make fresh pasta every day and fresh chicken broth every day and gnocchi and mm-hmm. all this stuff that you, you just like the smell it's of home. For your soul. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. 
So yeah, chicken soup for the soul was so very like, much like an everyday It was actually being served experience. every day. <laughs> yes. And it was nice because like I was doing physical therapy when you could smell these kind of nurturing aromas everywhere. But mixing these kind of botanical elixirs with my dad in the kitchen was never something that I did to start a business. It right. was part of my psychological and emotional, emotional recovery from what I felt like I had done to myself, even if it was by accident. So how would I put the pieces of my, myself back together? And this was the first thing that I could do because it was very instinctual. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was just my dad and I, and then my mom, my dad and I, then my sister, my dad and I. And in the beginning, um, and it took five years to do, um, my skin looked worse. And I was like, oh, whatever, it's not working. I'm just going to keep you know, doing this as an exercise with my family. And we tried lavender essential oils mixed with botanical extracts and homeopathic tinctures. And it was getting worse with lavender and then rose. And then chamomile made it a little bit better for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we stumbled upon this Nature magazine wrote an article on the positive effects of jasmine and the enzymes from jasmine flower. So we started to look at jasmine. And then finally, my skin started to look better. So I had these 12 vials on my desk that I would just keep using that I was like, oh, well, this seems to be working and whatever. I'm still doing physical therapy all day. Then I noticed that like from 12 vials, it went down to eight and then seven. And then I'm like, Charlotte, are you stealing like some of the stuff that mm-hmm. like I was keeping on my desk. She's like, I'm not stealing it. I'm just borrowing it. <laughs> and she said, I'm figuring, like, I figure that if your skin that is so sensitive to everything else that you that you used is seeing a benefit from it, like, I'm just, I'm just going to use it. It works on you. It'll work on me. That was kind of her right. rationale. And then my mom started to notice that my skin, that my sister's skin looked better, that she started stealing it. So I went down to like two vials right. on my desk. So I had created this like pyramid scheme of kleptomaniacs in my family that would just start (laughs) stealing like everything from my room. And it it wasn't until the day that Glenda called me into the Harper's Bazaar offices because she said, I heard you're doing better after you you had an experimental stem cell procedure in China, um, where I went with my sister Mm. and my mom. And she's like, I heard you're doing better. And I said, yes, I can feel my ribs. I can't move a lot more, but I can feel my ribs more. Mm-hmm. And she said, come to the office and I want to catch up. So I couldn't afford um, an aide or a nurse at the time. So my sister was my aide. My sister was driving me around everywhere at the time. I'm hyperactive, as you can tell, hopefully by now. But um, I actually think you're quite calm. I'm calm, but ironically, I can never sit still, but I'm in a wheelchair. That's like the way I describe myself. <laughs> the great paradox. <laughs> so... My sister was with me and we're with Glenda for two hours and we're having a lovely conversation. And Glenda says, you look the same, you're just sitting. And my sister turns to her and said, he, he's not just sitting. He's actually doing physical therapy and he's making this, this thing with our father. And she took out one of the stolen vials <laughs> from her bag. The and my, Jasmine recipe. my face turns white because I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Like, we're not pitching anything. It's right. not a business. Right. And so Glenda says, if you're using it, then I'm going to use it. She puts it on her face. And then we leave. And my sister's kind of like, whatever. It was a nice conversation. And I'm like, I'm embarrassed that this is the person that I looked up to who was, you know, my mentor. I get a call 
four weeks later from her assistant and said, Glenda's shooting in the September issue. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. And she said, before you hang up, I'm going to put you on the phone with the beauty director. And I got on the phone with her and she said, we don't care if you are saying no, we're going to shoot it anyway in whatever vial it's in. You have five months to find two reputable retailers, um, find a factory, make it look chic, but it's happening. And so in, in a world where I felt completely alone because I couldn't feel 95% of my body, to realizing that I had a strong familial support with my, my mom and my dad and like at my bedside coming out talking to the surgeon, suddenly I realized that I had a bigger circle of family um, and people that would be supportive no matter what mm. with a strong voice. And so then I realized that it was my mission to connect my former life in fashion with my injury, with my new life in beauty. So then I said, okay, I'm doing this. I found a factory, which was not easy to find. And I called um, Robin Kohutching, who was at Fred Siegel, and um, CEO Bigelow, we launched there. And then I said, well, that's not enough. So I called the Christopher Reeve Foundation. I emailed them. And I said, you know, we have this product. I'm launching this company. I want to be involved with you. So they set up a meeting I met with the CEO, Peter Wilderotter, and then he set up a meeting with all of their directors, which took almost three months to meet everybody. And then they asked me to become one of their national ambassadors. And then I said, great, um, but that's actually still not enough. <laughs> so um, then I wanted to connect um, every sale of the product to giving back to spinal cord injury research. Mm -hmm. And... Um, to giving a voice to empower um, other people, not just with spinal cord injuries, just with like, you know, when you have that mirror moment when you're getting ready in the morning and, you know, you could be single or you could be married with five kids, but when you're in the bathroom putting on your skincare, you have those like three minutes alone right after you shower. And those are the moments of self-reflection that you're like, who do I want to be today? Mm -hmm. And it's you. It's really you. So that superhuman person that you're thinking about who you want to be is the person that you are. And so that's what I love about skincare is that for me, it's about those moments that are, that become so uh, emboldening for you that you feel so strong and confident that when you're walking in the street, people can't help but turn their heads mm -hmm. at this confident person that's smiling. And you're in your kind of own world when you're doing that. But that's what Clark's Botanicals is to me because it gave me back my life. And we started with, with nothing. I mean, I started from a, a place where I, had, I felt like I was told I had no life, but it gave me back my life. And, um, and so in that mission for me, it's um, important that it strengthens kind of the voice for other people. Mm -hmm. We also had no, we had no, voice in the brand. We had no, we had no uh, investment. Mm -hmm. So every dollar that I sold went back into the, into the company. I started from a hospital bed. And because of that, every customer that we have, we have a 92% customer re retention rate. That's and amazing. The reason why is that it has to work. The products have to work. And 
Ironically, I didn't care about the packaging in the beginning, even though I worked in fashion. Mm -hmm. I wanted the products to be the most results-oriented, efficacious products, but I did it just for my skin. But because of that, our customers were and are very loyal. And so little by little, the company grew. When did you officially launch it? 10 years ago. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, unofficially, I was formulating 16 years ago, but we were not selling in any sort of kind of... We were not known until 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. That was the official launch. Yeah. And so how involved is your dad right now? Oh, I mean, (laughs) we just had... So every Tuesday, we have meetings from our dining room and the house I grew up in. Oh, so he is still very involved. Yeah. So okay, my dad is like walking in and out of the room. My mom's walking in and out of the room with my sister's cute son. And it's very much a family affair. That's, oh, that's awesome. awesome. I love that you guys didn't all just sort of like, you know, formulate and then go your separate ways. I mean, it's nice that it's been this like glue for you as a unit. I mean, there. so one thing about my family is that both of my parents are only children. Mm. And so um, my mom is 100% Italian and I met in, in Bologna and I grew mm. up in Italy. And so Italian was my first language. And we have um, family dinner nights every Thursday and Sunday. And it's two types of pasta. My mom makes um, grilled vegetables, a fish, chicken, and my brother will grill steak. And then there's, it's like Thanksgiving twice yeah. a week. Oh, man. But you're not allowed to skip. And it's it. Those are moments that are very important to us because they ground you. Where no matter what's happening with work or with life, you have this group of people that is completely unfiltered. And whether or not you get along during the dinner, it doesn't matter. They're just there to support you, Um, and you have these unfiltered conversations. So work is very much part of that. It's kind of like a board meeting. Yeah, that's true. I never thought about yeah. that. I never thought about it that way, but yeah. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's so... I'm getting fat from my board meeting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, my board chicken and pasta? So fat. <laughs> Twice a week? <laughs> sounds amazing. But yeah, it's like you think about all these different types of therapy, right? It's like you have a physical therapy. I mean, I imagine you did some cognitive therapy. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know. Um, yes. I mean, how important was that? So important. I mean, I was everything from doing group therapy to one-on-one therapy. I did self-hypnosis. I was self-hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still do it? Guided meditation. Yeah. Okay. I do it every night now. So I learn you you learn how to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. My best time to do it is right before I fall asleep. And I do it every night for 15 to 20 minutes before I go to bed. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of tricks in your back pocket. Yes. A lot of tools. It's funny because QVC called one day and I went on air and doing something like that doesn't make me nervous. But imagining going to Starbucks on my own makes me like deathly afraid. Mm, Really? Yeah. Because it means like imagining getting up out of the chair and just walking alone and imagining living completely independently is something that seems foreign to me. I've, or it was, it, it did feel that way. Now it's not like that. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, speaking about 
whatever or connecting with other people was easy to do, but doing something for myself was difficult. Right. Do you live alone now? No. No, no not yet. I'm looking yeah. for a place in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. You're ready to be back in the city. I am. And, you know, scaling the business to a healthy level took a while. Yeah. And I had, I had sold the business three years ago to private equity, to Werber Pincus. Okay. Um, and then they had started an umbrella company called Glansale with two other brands, Julep and Laura Geller. We were by far the smallest of the three brands. Oh, yeah. I know Julep. And I love Jane Park and the whole team. It's just like a vision. And then, you know, two and a half years later after that, they said that the group would declare bankruptcy. So during that time, I had to strategize how to buy the brand back. Mm -hmm. And I did. And so now we're back to being independent. Okay. And it's so funny because like, you think about that process and I wouldn't recommend going through that more than once. (laughs) (laughs) But buying it back was just something that Again, it was like fight or flight. Yeah. And it's very much your instinct and how committed are you to the people that you work with. Yeah. So for me, it, it wasn't really, oh my God, the Antipify cream. It was more like, this is what we, we created, but this is also the community of people that has become your family. And they have families and they work with you and your, your customers are part of that too. So that entire thing was something that became bigger than my purpose in it. And, but it was my part of my job to uh, ensure that for them. And I love doing it. Yeah. It's fun. So how yeah. big is the team now? Nine of us. Okay. Yeah. And you guys are, obviously you're in the Bigelow and those pharmacies and what is... Space and K. Okay. So we're big in the UK. Really? <laughs> uh, I think they just think that we're British because it's Clark's. Clark's, yeah. Um, and... So we're in Space and K in the UK. We're in spaceandk.com in the US with Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's. We're in Australia. We're in Hong Kong. We're launching in Russia in um, the early summer. Mm-hmm. But we're mainly direct-to-consumer. Okay. So clarksbotanicals.com is our biggest um, revenue driver. And what's your, what's your best product? What's your best-selling product? Smoothing Marine Cream mm-hmm. is our number one selling product. It's our moisturizer. It's like a moisturizer... Hybrid with um, a serum. Okay. And what if, is it? What's the active? Oh, okay. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so it has five percent sugar derived glycolic acid, and the reason why we're using five percent sugar derived glycolic acid is that a typical moisturizer will use hyaluronic acid, but it's such a big molecule that when you wash your face at the end of the night, you're washing away a lot of the benefits from it. I wanted something that would stimulate your skin's own production of hyaluronic acid to penetrate the second and third layer of the dermis, smaller molecule that would do that. So when you put it on, it's going to tingle. Then we couple that with dehydrated algae microspheres. These are microspheres um, of algae that absorb moisture from the air. So when you put it on your skin, you're going to see the look of dry fine lines and, lo- dry fine lines, um, and wrinkles plump up. Mm-hmm. And it's going to give you that bounce in your skin, like, like a baby's butt, mm-hmm. just like all over your face. That coupled coupled with glucosamine HCL, very strong antioxidant, and what is now our jasmine catalyst complex. Hmm. So it's proprietary. The jasmine catalyst complex is what fixed my skin. Right. And this is a combination of extracts from jasmine with enzymes from jasmine coupled with arnica montana, red algae, 
and niacinamides. So the combination of everything that we put together in this complex rebalances your skin, boosts collagen production, gives you that glow that your skin might have been missing. But it just kind of like, it's the skin perfecter. That's what I felt like um, to me. And so the moisturizer is our number one selling product. And now we have our new Jasmine Vital Cream, which is our newest moisturizer. It's a gel cream that has the strongest version of the Jasmine Catalyst Complex in it. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hgwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.